quick introduction before we get into this week's episode. Matt Barnes, our guest, uh, since the recording of this podcast, has launched a greeting card company. I think his designs are awesome. They feature the same kind of collage artwork that he talks about later in the interview, but he doesn't actually talk about these cards during the interview, which is why I wanted to bring special attention to them now. You can maybe see them in the background here. And if you'd like to learn more, you can check out barnescards.com. This is not a sponsored post by any means. It's just, I think his work is great and I wanted to bring attention to it. So thanks and let's get into the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of Design Exchange. Today with me, Matt Barnes, Matthew Barnes. All of it. Mr. Barnes on the internet. Mr. Barnes? Yeah, all spelled out. We are coming to you from a, the, a parking garage, one of Matt's favorite locations in Columbus. Yeah, it's beautiful here. There's a great overlook of the city here. You can see for miles all the way west. You can watch the sunset here. It's a beautiful location. Uh, I've been coming here for years. Um, I'll come up here just to meditate, just to watch the sunset, um, to look at people and assume they're little tiny ants uh, and wonder what's going on in their mind. Um, yeah, just a kind of a good location to ponder the pleasantries of life. Would you mind telling us a little bit of your background? Like, I know that you've been involved with different aspects of design and um, art mm. as well, right? Yeah. So like, were you, how involved were, we with, were you with art in high school? And then, cause like, I actually don't have much of a memory of you being that into art. Yeah. Uh, so what changed and like, how did your, how did it develop into an interest and into a career? So uh, long, way, way, way back. So um, I was born in Portland, Oregon. We lived uh, in Illinois, Missouri, Arizona, Kansas, moved to Ohio when I was uh, 13, turning 14. Um, art was kind of always my solace. Uh, it was the thing that I could turn to, to like spend my time with. Uh, social engagements were difficult having moved so many different places. So I would connect with people, formulate friendships, and then have to kind of be uprooted from those. And the thing that I turned to all the time was like drawing. Uh, my dad was a television cameraman, um, so I found uh, some solace also in photography. We went on a few trips, and some of my fondest memories are of my father and I walking around uh, big cities just photographing till wee hours of the morning. Um, at, when I moved to Ohio, I was uh, tepid in my attempt to socially adapt, so I looked at what was culturally appropriate and tried to like formulate myself into that, but always having kind of this uh, interest in the arts. I mean, I continued my practices of art and photography. Uh, when I got into high school, um, I witnessed a couple of uh, performances on stage and like fell in love. There was a girl that I fell in love with on stage and then started connecting with her. And then we, um, uh, maintained our relationship. And then I got involved into theater and then from theater, I got involved in choir 
And then, I know you more from theater and choir. Than- yeah, I think our interaction together came from more of like in our senior year. Even though we went to high school together the, all, all four years, and we probably spent the most time together in our senior year through choir and perhaps a little theater. I was in um, uh, four productions senior year and had such a great time with it. I auditioned at Otterbein and they... Their Division three school couldn't offer scholarships. They're like, we want to leapfrog you through two years of our programming just straight into the BFA program for acting. And I was like, so you're telling me I got it. And they're like, yeah, you got it. We want you here. And I'm like, how much is tuition? And they're like, yeah, you might end up with like $100,000 in debt when you graduate, but it'll be all right. And I'm like, uh, I didn't have a, like, I had a very bleak outlook on what my future might look like with a theater degree. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be serving tables in New York till I'm 50, trying to pay off $100,000 in debt. And you just told me I have it, so I'm just going to X out of this and say thanks. Uh, I promised my parents that I would get a college degree. Um, I always told them that I wanted to be on Second City. Like, I was like, I want to be on Saturday Night Live. And the way through that is, uh, the way to that is through Second City. Um, and they're like, but you need a practical education. And I was like, all right, I'll get the practical education, then go do that. Well, while I was in school, I decided that... Uh, I thought like business was going to be the, the best approach. So I was headed into Fisher College of Business at Ohio State, uh, specifically in marketing, kind of a creative field. And uh, this epiphany kind of hit me where I was like, I can do what I want to do, still get a college degree and have this kind of ancillary experience in the fine art world because I'd taken a, um, an art history class and just kind of been uh, enthralled with uh, art history. And so I applied to the BFA program at Ohio State for photography, which seemed like a natural trajectory with my family history, and uh, got denied. And I was kind of like, uh, felt low about it. Um, I auditioned, there was a huge audition on Ohio State campus for As the World Turns. I stood in line for six hours. The soap opera? Yeah, the soap opera. It's now offline, or it's now off air. Okay. Um, <laughs> But it had like 80-some seasons or something. It was, it was a wildly successful and popular um, soap opera. Uh, but they were coming, they were doing this college tour, and they were auditioning kids at, I think, 12 schools. I stood in line for six hours and auditioned against 800 other kids, and I got cast in the principal role for um, one of the speaking roles on As the World Turns. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. Uh, and then I applied and had a great time. Um, didn't do anything more with it after that. I still had like about a year, year and a half to graduate. I applied to the BFA program for photography again, got in. And then I spent a uh, majority of my uh, time at school. Like I didn't get a job. I just stayed focused on producing work for my curriculum. And at times I would do two projects when one was due just to get the extra feedback. So um, what was your curriculum? Uh, my focus was photography. But I was really interested in uh, like mid 20th century uh, art like, uh, from the time of uh, Claus Oldenburg and Robert Rauschenberg, uh, Andy Warhol, uh, Jackson Pollock. From that period forward, I was really interested in um, the creation process. A little bit further than that, uh, I fell in love with Marcel Duchamp, obviously, with his. Um, proclamations of what art art is and what art is not. 
Uh, and that's what really inspired me to kind of move forward into art creation was that you can point at something and call it art for whatever subset of ideals you want to apply to it. Um, and uh, so I started making tons and tons of art in my basement um, with friends. And then I threw a huge exhibition um, at Ohio State. I filled a 10,000 square foot warehouse with tons of creations that I'd made in conjunction with other people. I put up some of my photography and uh, got written up in a number of local publications and thought that I was on my way uh, towards a fine art career. Um, but there's a lot more work involved in it than uh, just making the work. There's a lot of marketing that has to take place. And um, so after I graduated, uh, I continued my practice pretty significantly with um, photography. I've, I've been inspired by the photography of William Eggleston, Stephen Shore, and Joel Meyerowitz. Um, they're kind of um, happenstance photographers that walk around and uh, bump into moments of harmony, visual harmony. Um, and so that's kind of what I do. I'll take long walks and just hope that I bump into um, a composition that's uh, loaded full of color, uh, loaded full of nuanced action, um, and then capture that and catalog it. As, as, a, as a photograph. Mm-hmm. As a photograph. And then, uh, yeah, after I graduated uh, from, uh, from Ohio State, I moved to Tennessee for six months. Uh, couldn't uh, normalize the culture and um, decided to move back to Columbus. Um, I, was, I was a caddy at Muirfield for a long time. Uh, and so I had an opportunity to interact with some um, exceptional entrepreneurs, uh, exceptional uh, elite business people from all over the world. And I took a lot from our conversations. I mean, you're spending four and five hours with some of these people and you can dig into uh, their life with, you know, great questions. Um, and so I, I was inspired to start businesses after that. And uh, I started an event marketing company. The question posed from one of my main clients to one of his friends was, our city is not known for anything. We don't really have an identity. It's like football, beer, and shopping. Um, and what else do we, what else do we have here? So I took that as kind of a challenge and uh, put together this event that showcased all of the local talent in one place at one time. So we used Gay Street right here. Uh, we didn't shut down the street, but we used all of the businesses and filled up each of the businesses with some event. So uh, going east, we filled up Duomichi, which is a restaurant. We had solo musicians playing the cello or the flute uh, alongside some of their great culinary um, pieces. And after a certain period of time, they would be escorted down to another space where there was a, um, a poetry slam and then some DJs spinning. And then they were escorted from there into another space that had uh, like a wine tasting on one side, a chocolate tasting on the other, then entered into the main space, which used to be used to serve as an old bank vault. And there was a jazz trio on the corner, a fine art exhibition taking place all over. Then we had an experimental dance 
team kind of crawl throughout the space. And then the evening culminated with a, uh, a fashion show with local designers uh, showcasing uh, their designs. Um, it was a great networking event for people. We had 700 to 800 people for the two years that it, that it operated. Um, that was 2005 and 2006. At the end of 2006, we were like, we'd ran out of cash. Uh, we invested a lot of our own money. Uh, first rule of business, never use your own money. Because um, <laughs> uh, we ate a significant amount. And after that, I was like, I was more interested in um, uh, my own creations. I just started, I turned inward and began making more found object assemblages. I'd fallen in love with Picasso. I kind of dismissed Picasso all through high school and college as being a cliche artist that everybody talked about. But then I was in Miami Beach for Art Basel and almost came face to face, like literally bumped into a Picasso sculpture. And uh, I backed away from it and was like completely enamored by it. And then I started making drawings and making um, masks out of found objects and uh, created this entire series of faces. Um, and uh, let's see, after that, Marketing has always been a part of my experience, like find, trying to find a way to create an audience for my creations. And it's not simple because they're not, they don't really do anything for you. They don't nourish you physically. They don't, they're not shoes or they're not a shirt. It's not something you can use over and over. It's like a thing. Um, so when I graduated from Ohio State and I moved back to Columbus, I started creating these like trash sculptures and uh, leaving my email address on them. And then if people emailed me when they found them, I knew that I had a, like, a legit lead. So I would log them into a database of leads. And then anytime I had a show, I'd email them and say, hey, I'm having a show. So it was a, more, it was a greater likelihood of having a buyer. Uh, but walking around with a big bag full of like broken trash sculptures got kind of um, tedious. And so I... Uh, it was about the time that Twitter came out and I started creating these uh, square collages on four inch by four inch um, particle board. I'd paint it uh, and then glue down these really random collages. They were kind of like physical tweets and then I'd hide them in the environment and photograph them, giving away visual clues to their location. And then I would tweet it out to my following and my following would race each other to grab it. Oh. Um, I would add value to them too. So I'd link up with a local brand and make the tile worth like anywhere from five to $500. And so it created a frenzy when people would see it. This is back when Twitter would like live feed um, uh, anything that came through. Same with Instagram. It, was, it would be live feed. And so when it would show up, people knew that it was right then and there. And they'd be like, I'm two miles away from that. I think I can get there really quick. So they'd race each other and, and grab it. I won some awards with it. I won a, an Addy. I worked with great brands like Corona and Time Warner Cable. And Now, when you say that you, um, they could be, these tiles could be worth money, that means like on a secondary market, people would, would bid for them or buy them or that like, you could bring this to that restaurant and get a... The discount on the food or whatever. Yeah, the latter. My hope was that they would it would create a separate art market without my involvement where people would trade them back and forth like old baseball cards. Uh, but uh, it ended up being kind of the latter where it would be worth, you know, $10 off your meal at 
such and such restaurant or $500 night stay at the Westin or something. And, uh, it got me really involved in collage. And so I started making a lot of collage work, which I don't think that I would have ever anticipated as a part of my art making experience, but I make a lot of paper art, paper cutout art. Now it's a way for me to reduce my inventory too. my studios. I've had several studios over the years and my studios always just get filled to the, to the rafters with random junk. Um, <laughs> wow. so. so do you have a studio right now? Uh, I just left a studio down on South high street. I have, my artwork is parsed out right now in four places. So it's still over at the old studio. There's, we had to leave that space because of zoning issues. Uh, it wasn't zoned properly for us to inhabit at the time. Um, but I've got stuff stored in an area that I can't make the artwork there, but I can at least leave it there. Uh, my friend who I partnered with on my recent, it's like a business venture. It's like an experience. It was called Leisure Club. He's got stuff at his house. I've got stuff at my house. Uh, currently, I, just, I make uh, most of my work in my dining room. Yeah, right now. I saw some posts of yours about Leisure Club. This is how it looks from uh, arm distance away. Right? It's like the ultimate man cave. And then if you want to use it, you can rent it for the hour, rent it for the day. Mm-hmm. Am I, how close yeah, am I? spot on. All right. Spot on. Yeah, it was like <laughs> the ultimate man cave. It was, a, it was kind of a, an escape. Um, the way it culminated, my friend Jared and I, and uh, my partner in Leisure Club, um, we've been hanging out together on different creative ventures for the last six or seven years. And uh, we'd been meeting for happy hour like once a week and going over different ideas and just looking around like, man, it's really loud in here. And this playlist sucks. And I don't want to have to keep tugging on the bartender's shirt sleeve to change the channel on the TV. By the way, these beers are really expensive. Like what if we just pooled our happy hour budgets and just got a studio and we can go there and brainstorm our ideas and I can have a little studio and we can drink some beers and invite our friends over and we can control the playlist and we can put on a sports program if we want, or we can watch an old movie. Um, and uh, so that's what we did. And we got this small studio at 400 West Rich right over here. And uh, during uh, Franklinton Fridays, we'd open the door. People would come in. And the way that it was set up is, we, you know, we've got a leather couch, couches, and the decor on the wall is like vintage Americana. So we'd have a poster of an F-16 and then a poster of Farrah Fawcett and then a small American flag and then um, some sports hero imagery and things that people could connect to from their past. Um, and the way that we, uh, I guess, philosophized on it was that we, we are creating a space where people can come agree on something to start. And then a conversation opens up where they can get detailed about whatever it is that they want to, but it's a base level for them, um, to have a memory about something. And maybe that picture of Farrah Fawcett, their uncle had in his den, and the other person's grandfather had in his basement. And so they're at a starting point where like, I have a memory about this image. And now we can, now we're connected in some way. And now we can start a conversation about something more detailed. Um, it was kind of a way to network uh, without the premise of networking being there. What we found is going to these happy hours that a lot of the people that we were surrounding ourselves with couldn't shut off work. 
they constantly were on about, you know, their startup or their, their day-to-day job life. And, um, one of the classes I took in college, it opened up, it talked about, um, there's three parts to your life. You have production, labor, and leisure. Your production is how you put yourself together in the morning, eating, sleeping, uh, not sleeping, eating, bathing, cleaning your house, learning, uh, reading the paper, things that you're doing to produce yourself. Your labor is what you do to bring in money. And then your leisure is what you do to enjoy your time. What we witnessed is a lot of people just still focused on labor in their leisure time. So we're like, why would we want that? There's so much to be said for uh, your leisure time to where... um, you can disconnect from your labor, but still process the information that you were dealing with at that time. So our premise was to bring people together uh, over uh, leisure, like get them to hang out, whatever that meant. If it was putting while drinking a beer, uh, casually playing a game of basketball, uh, playing an old video game, watching an old movie, so we, you know, we created, we created an experience for people to come and just enjoy themselves. It lasted for as long as it did. And, uh, uh, it was nice. It was just like a little blip in, in history. That was, is that the kind of thing you might try to do again? If the right stars are aligned? Mm-hmm. hundred percent. Yeah. I'm really into experiences. I'm into creating, uh, memorable moments for people. Uh, memorable moments for people as individuals and memorable moments for people as collectives. Is that uh, why you suggested we, we meet at this location? Yeah, well, this is just one of my favorite locations. I mean, I, um, it seems like you've had a really uh, robust experience since we last saw each other. Uh, you've been all over the world. You've done a lot of great things with your own experience. I've done a lot of great things since, but a lot of it's been rooted right here. And so I've been able to dig into the nooks and crannies of this city. And this happens to be one of my favorite, one of my favorite places to just come and be. Um, I hadn't really been in Columbus a lot. Even if I came for Thanksgiving, I'm just with family the whole time. I'm not trying to be a person in Columbus. Right. Right. Uh, but last year I came here and I met a friend who, who's uh, had moved back here from San Francisco. I mean, he's a Columbus native, but, he had left for many years, started some companies, and then decided to move back. And uh, kind of through following him around one day, I totally gained a new appreciation. Uh, we walked around the streets, you know, between here and German Village, and mm-hmm. there was some concert at some guy's house that he's just, you know, he's invite. He's like, I have a house. These musicians are good. I'm gonna you know, invite my friends over, we're going to have wine and listen to these musicians, yeah. you know, it's this kind of, uh, culture that I think as high schoolers in Columbus, uh, in Cowtown, Columbus, <laughs> Ohio, we dreamt about. Yeah. And a lot of us left searching for, mm. you know, art meccas or, mm-hmm. uh, cultural meccas outside of Columbus, even though there was some pretty significant stuff being done, it ha- has always been some significant stuff being done yeah. here. I could say when I was in high school, the last thing I wanted to do was stay in Ohio. Yeah. And at this point, if I was to come, if I was to live in America again, Columbus would be pretty high on my list of yeah. places I was going to consider. Uh, it's not a bad place. 
uh, I've had options to move to Chicago and move to New York, move to LA, move to Nashville, um, or Portland. And, uh, what I find endearing about Columbus is the access to uh, the creative capital here. There's a lot going on and it really is about what you make of it. I could go to Chicago or New York and probably uh, entrench myself in some of the creative um, environments that are going on there, but I don't know that the impact would be as broad. Uh, it might be good and I might, you know, I might make a decent living, but I don't know that the resonance would be as sharp as it is here. If you do something creatively in Columbus, it resonates um, pretty significantly, I believe, across multiple um, social categories, for sure. Uh, yeah, I have a love-hate with Columbus, Ohio, personally. Like, I love it from the standpoint of the networks I built here, personally and professionally, are good. Um, oh, cool. Um, the, I guess, disdain I have with it is that the, the mediocrity that it, um, boils down to, it boils up to and boils down to, uh, you go to places like, uh, Miami beach and you're in one corner of one of their mediocre parts of town has more going on than you can fill in an evening here inside 270. <laughs> um, what do you attribute that to? Uh, water, water and sunlight. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. I mean, just so because it's, I mean, that's a place people go to, to party. It's a place. Yeah. There's a lot of cocaine. <laughs> there is a lot of, cocaine. I've heard yeah. that Miami is a, got a lot of cocaine. Uh, yeah. The documentary cocaine Cowboys talks about how Miami was built on cocaine. Yeah, you're right. So is that the, the I don't know. The differences are less ocean, less sun, and less cocaine. <laughs> uh, Subtract got... those things. Less, less, uh, less Cuban sandwiches, yeah. and you got Columbus. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's gray here. Three hundred days out of the year, we've got clouds. Um, we have all the seasons. Um, the warm seasons are shortened. Uh, the open-mindedness is greater here than it is in a lot of other areas, but it's a pocket. Um, I think when you get to the coasts, west or east, the open-mindedness is significantly higher. Their appreciation of the arts is higher. Uh, they're not economically strapped. Um, Ohio is, you know, it's astute, kind of. Um, but we've got one guy here worth four, four and a half billion dollars. He's like our wealthiest guy in the state. You go to San Francisco, there's like 10 guys on one street worth that much. Um, so, so less chance for patrons of the art. Oh, uh, yeah, much, much less chance of patrons of the art. Supporters. People, people might support, but they're doling out like fractions of what's being doled out in coastal cities. And then there's, there's a much lower population density as well. I think uh, the core... Columbus, Ohio, it's like 1.2 million, but that includes all the way out into Powell, into Delaware, I think. And so your square footage is 
significantly larger than it would be in San Francisco or uh, even Detroit. Um, we're very sparse. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, we're our, our main industries here are medicine, insurance, just distribution. Um, we're not known for, uh, we don't have like a moniker. We're not like the big apple. We're not like Hollywood. We have monikers. We just aren't proud of them. Yeah. Like, uh, or they change so often. C-Bus and Cowtown. Yeah. I don't know. There must be others. Yeah. The 614. Yeah. I like people. People wear their pride here, um, but to what avail? Well, okay. Here's here's a a critique. I had the one of my best friends growing up. His parents were both art professors at OSU, and um, after he finished high school, after he finished, yeah, after he finished high school, maybe university, they moved away. They got teaching jobs at other schools, and. Uh, one year they came back and I got to meet them after they had been away from Columbus. We'd both been away from Columbus for, I don't know, five or 10 years at the time. And I was trying to kind of ask them, so what's your take on, you know, what do you miss about Columbus or, you know, how does it compare to other things? And they're, maybe number one thing they don't like about Columbus is probably the number one thing that many people in Columbus do like, which is like sports, yeah. right? They're like, there's a lot of support for sports here. A lot of people really into the Buckeyes, not so much art. Right. Um, in comparison to the fever that there is for college football. And I don't, I mean, I, yeah. I, I guess income is income is like a, is a player in how people, distribute their own personal wealth and what they find important. And experiences are a big part of that. Sports provide them with a good experience for the most part. It's a very social experience. It's very safe most of the time. Um, safe from the standpoint of it's not going to challenge you uh, personally. Um, and so that's what they spend their money on. Where if I'm someone in a Miami, for example, and I'm uh, working for a, a coastal distribution company, my income is going to substantiate it to where I can support the arts and sports. Where here, it's like, I maybe this is just my personal opinion, but the income here isn't nearly as high as it is in other cities. And so people justify the way they spend their money on like immediacy on things that are like not that expensive, kind of maybe, that are going to provide them with an experience good enough that they can go back to work on Monday and, and talk about that fun experience. It's not very diverse. It's diverse, but it's not. Uh, Ohio State was called the weirdest campus of all college campuses, and it does have a very diverse population. Uh, there's a lot of different cultures coming in to Columbus, Ohio from all over the world, uh, which makes for a really rich beautiful experience here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, but it's still, I still want for more here. I do. So then what's your next plan? Mine? Yeah. Uh, I'm cooking something up right now. Still got leisure club in my pocket. Um, 
I've been really into that, uh, the nonchalance agency, Jeff Hull out of San Francisco, and these multi-step experiences for people that are in the real world um, and not just exhibits. Popular things right now like Meow Wolf. I think I don't know if you've heard of Meow Wolf or no, I haven't. So it's a it's a spot in San, in Santa Fe. Uh, this collective of artists got together. They solicited some cash from George R R Martin, and they built out this beautiful uh, visual experience. It's amazing, from what I understand. I've never been. Plan to go, but um, you walk in and it's like an old house. And then you open up the refrigerator and it's a doorway into another world. And then when you step down into it, it's this psychedelic underworld. And they've got these crazy um, rooms that are, uh, uh, they're installed, they're installations by other artists and they're fascinating. They're beautiful. And you spend a few hours gallivanting throughout this entire space. You walk away inspired or... Um, with a new perspective, uh, and then that's it. You can go back and visit again, maybe when the exhibits turn, a new group of artists come in and do something else in one of the other rooms. But it's not something that um, uh, encapsulates time. So this is going to get a little heady, uh, but I was sitting in my apartment with my two boys, and my two boys are huge Star Wars fans. They're big, like, futuristic dudes. They love anything to do with progress or the future um and they were sitting there playing with their toys at the kitchen island and my youngest son looks up and he's like dad what's a sixth dimension i was like great question i don't know uh let's go to youtube and find out so there's this great video on youtube and it's uh called the 11 dimensions of reality and it talks about um one dimension is like just a point two dimensions is a point to another point it's a line three dimensions is where we are right now uh, uh, length times width times height. Uh, fourth dimension is uh, motion. The fifth dimension is another line. It's the passage of time from your birth to your death. Um, and when I heard about the fifth dimension, this kind of like light bulb went off in my mind that you can curate content within the confines of a time frame. People do it when they go to movies. They're spending two hours. They enter the movie theater. They watch the movie for two hours. The movie ends. They go on about their way. But that two-hour time frame, you can curate to be whatever it is that you want. And watching the, um, the Institute and seeing how people are spending their time and how experiences are new, the new, like, um, experiences are almost like wealth creation at this point, are... Boomers identified their success by the gathering of quality goods where Gen Xers and millennials are quantifying their success by the amount of experiences that they've had. If that's the case, then why not curate a, an experience that's like really exceptional and um, inspiring and amazing? So if a person, like escape rooms are a, are a good example. People are paying, you know, $75 to spend 45 minutes in a room to conduct a bunch of clues, but it's in a fixed space. Uh, the documentary on the Institute, their experiences throughout the entire city, it's all over and it's 
uh, over a very long period of time, but my next uh, idea will come within shrinking experiences into a time frame for people to experience uh, around a geographic location and not in one physical spot. So I'm really, I'm really inspired by the idea of uh, providing awesome experiences for people um, and guiding them through that experience with some story or some subset of tasks um, or clues um, and then for them to walk away with some level of satisfaction, whether that's inspiration or um, excitement or evangel uh, evangelizing the concept. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut this one out because this is a freebie for you. Okay. Do that. Yeah. But with, uh, but incorporate sports. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah. It'll be success. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. So that could work. <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah, I thought filmmaking or film was gonna be something that would be really awesome to experience or to do, um, but it's limited. Uh, where, did that, where did filmmaking come from? Yeah, you know, my dad being a television cameraman, oh, right. photography, acting. I thought like if I got a degree in photography, I'd be able to see how I would look from behind the camera as well as in front of the camera. Um, and then that became not as important as like actually providing an amazing experience for people. The feedback that I got off of the, uh, the Twitter game it was called tweet and go seek. The feedback I got from participants was like humbling. Um, we did one, one year where the last prize, it was a campaign that we got hired out to do, uh, from the greater Columbus arts council. And the final prize was like a $500 gift. And we created this three-step process for the person who was going to get the final piece. And we waited for that person at the final location. They had to, I forget, they had to go hit a golf ball into the mouth of a clown. And then once they did that, they had to rush over and um, ask this uh, bartender a uh, ridiculous question. And the keyword, the answer from the bartender would be the location where they were to head to get the... Uh, final piece when the guy who won finished he grabbed it and we were waiting in the wing and uh we watched him and he like broke down crying and we walked up to him and we're like hey man are you okay like everything all right like congratulations that's a big prize and he was like man this is so amazing he's like i've never i've never had an experience like this he's like i've been unemployed for two years he's like i haven't been able to take my wife on a date He's like, this is going to afford me the opportunity to like show my wife a good time. And I just can't thank you enough for putting this together and blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of a light bulb for me at that moment where I was like, this is the, this is the type of stuff that I want to do. Even if this is the reaction I get every time or not, I want to do this for people where they, um, they have this sense of connection to the experience that they're having such that they'll like emote or evangelize on behalf of. Um, or try to do, or try to emulate on their own in some way. So, yeah, I just want to create awesome experiences for people. <laughs> yeah. 
experience design or user experience design is this term that's become very, let's say, well used, but maybe overused, abused, abused, <laughs> abused, maybe in the last, I think, in the last uh, ten years. Mm. I read an, when I before I got into game design, I read this article from the guy who I eventually ended up apprenticing under. And it was an article about game design through the lens of visiting Disney World. Hmm. And uh, kind of pretty early on in the article, it's, it talks about like when you walk down Main Street and you smell popcorn, mm-hmm. like that, it's not that they want you to be able to eat popcorn. It's that the smell of the popcorn is part of the experience design. You know, it's like, and you're stepping 100%. in, you know, so... The way that we've uh, uh, talked about that is it's the visceral nature of space. Uh, in our critique of our happy hour uh, adventures, we uh, would be in restaurants or bars where the focus was the taste. You're tasting this beer. All of the other sensory experiences around here are kind of like sub-thoughts. So the sound, it's like really loud. People are talking. The playlist isn't that awesome. The smell smells like vomit or it smells like back to plumbing or uh, the sights. It's people in their, you know, casual T-shirts and cut off jean shorts um, or the TVs are on some sports program that nobody's paying attention to. So they're focusing in on one of your senses. But as a human being, your senses are on fire all the time. And me as a designer or a brand my job is to ignite those senses as best as possible, all of them. Um, I want, for me personally, as a, uh, a creator, I want everybody's senses to be turned on when they're in an environment that I've curated. So the visuals, I want them to be like blown away by the visuals or um, uh, not alarmed, but like, they're, they're very aware of what's happening around them visually. And then sensory, like their smell, their sense of smell, it's going to be leather, uh, bourbon, or coffee that I want kind of uh, around in the sense, uh, in, their, in their sense of smell. Sounds, um, it's got to be soft. It's got to be something that's like not offensive, something that might spark memory. So it's usually music that you're, grandparents or parents would have been listening to when they were, when you were real young. Um, so it sparks like uh, a sense of nostalgia feels, uh, in terms of your sense of touch, it's gotta be things that are comfortable that allow you to like sink in and then absorb your other senses as well. So it all plays together in this visceral nature of space. And I don't think brands or creators on a whole are, paying attention to that obviously Disneyland has a lot of money to invest in uh, market research. So they're going to, they're going to uh, play to that with the set, with the smell of popcorn and uh, the sounds of their, you know, their branded content. I think McDonald's does it really well. I think uh, Coca-Cola does it really well. There's a lot of big brands that pay attention to your, um, your senses and your emotions. Uh, I, I flew here today and part Welcome. of my experience coming here was uh, 
standing in the security line at an airport, right? And I was lamenting how probably, I don't really like the act of traveling, Mm -hmm. right? I I like to be in new places, but I don't like the act of traveling, getting there, right? (laughs) Standing in lines and sitting in small seats and... But potentially waiting in, waiting in the security line is the worst part about it. It could be the worst part of the whole experience, right? Agreed. And in Disney World or Disneyland, the line for the ride is sometimes more interesting than the actual ride. Huh. Uh, yeah. It depends on the length of the line because at some point it's just a regular line. But when you get within, let's say, 40 minutes of the actual ride, the line is designed, Wow. Like from, so uh, let's say if you go to a Little Mermaid exhibit, yes. like most of the line is like these coves and these little holes to look through and see some sort of uh, scene out of the movie or some interest. little interaction that you can do that, you know. So you're already getting into the world of the Little Mermaid, for instance, as you're approaching the ride, you know. Huh. And it, it, it it makes it so if you have to wait in line for 40 minutes, it's a joy instead of a drudgery. I'm you know, just sitting there like back and forth like, <laughs> when am I going to get on the ride? <laughs> yeah. And uh, most places don't do that. Yeah. Um, have like great lines. Yeah. Um, and huh. s- certainly the airport doesn't. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, I think airports should hire experienced designers like you. <laughs> To, you know, make it less shitty. <laughs> right? So I've got a friend and uh, he's, um, he had an influencer uh, marketing company that he recently sold. And he partnered with a furniture design company to create this cafe that showcases their furniture. Cafe serves really excellent quality coffee. And then it's a membership base. Uh, people can come in and they can co-work or they can hold meetings or they can just enjoy a cup of coffee and hang out. But they were approached by a corporation that had major attrition problems. They just couldn't keep their employees. They couldn't inspire them enough. There were no perks that were worthy. And so they have hired them to create this lounge. It's like an experienced lounge in their corp in their corporate building. And that's kind of the direction that he's heading is creating these um, these experiences or this, these places for experience to happen more readily um, that uh, will engage people and hopefully retain them for <laughs> their, uh, their clients. Um, and so I've been interested in that a lot lately in, um, you know, the development of experiences, not with an ulterior motive, but with the support for something else. I guess that would be an ulterior motive. Um, yeah, creating creating an experience for people that might be supported by big money um, with the intent for it to uh, generate income on behalf of that big money. But still, it's an experience. These people have just had an awesome uh, moment in their life that is now a memory for them that they might go on and storytell to their group of friends I don't think there's any problem in um, something's rolling on top of us. Is skateboarding up there? Is Tony Hawk here? Um, yeah. 
So I, I love the idea of uh, experience creation on a multitude of levels. A lot of the world is ad-supported these days, whether that's games or YouTube videos. or And maybe that's similar to what you were saying about you're getting the experience, but there is some corporate interest that yeah. kind of in the mix. Mm-hmm. Or you go to a sporting game, you paid the ticket. That's kind of a commercial transaction. But then also there's probably uh, banners for different brands who are some some uh, very large corporation probably is paying the rent for the stadium and has their name on the building. Or Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of uh, what I was attempting to do uh, when I started Civitas Now in 2012. I had had, I created the game Tweet and Go Seek in 2009. I beta tested it in... Um, Let's get some of this. Yeah. I don't know if I got that at all. I just kind of... <laughs> That's awesome. I knew they were out there. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> It's yeah. hard to compete with uh, Coolness a parade, a parade of longboarders or whatever <laughs> they were. Now, I knew like uh, at an early age that I did not want to work for other people, but working for other people has like kind of have to do it in some instances. Um, so I wanted to be creative. I did not want to be a commercial sellout, uh, but I needed a day job. And then at one point, I was like, well, what if I just merge the two? And I created that game, Tweet and Go Seek, where we're hiding things in the environment and photographing them, giving away visual clues, linking up with brands to add value to them. Like, but what if the platform dies? What if Twitter isn't valid anymore? They change their algorithm and it's not real time any longer. Um, we can't just base the agency on this one thing. So we used it as a card in our full catalog of offerings when we created Civitas Now. And I'd hired a young man, uh, this boy, to work with me um, on Tweet and Go Seek. Um, and then we started having conversations and that's when Civitas Now was born. Um, and that was a way for us to reach out to big brands and have them pay us to do really creative executions. And we did some really awesome stuff for national brands, uh, local brands, and the creativity was awesome. It just wasn't lasting. Uh, it was like quick. We'd do the thing, get some attention for it, uh, and then it would get crumbled up and tossed away and we'd have to chase the next client, um, which I think is the nature of you know, the creative industry in terms of com- commercial creative industry. It's turn and burn constantly. You gotta be the next glitziest, um, glossiest, version of something brand new all the time and with a different brand all the time. Um, so I tried to merge the two at one point, did it fairly well. Uh, and then, uh, just realized I enjoy doing it for people more than I do on behalf of brands. I think the authenticity, um, gets diluted. Now you're doing art more strictly for passion, but then you're, you've got a day job and that is still within like the, the realm of creativity. Yeah. I'm a uh, big believer in the idle hands, idle hands with the devil's workshop. So I work sun up to sundown till I 
pass out. I don't want a lot. I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, so I have a day job. Uh, and I also make art just for the sake of making art in hopes to one day, you know, share it with others in some format. Uh, and I also collaborate with others on creative endeavors in hopes to create a more lasting or meaningful impact. Um, whether that's, uh, short-lived or that's, you know, eternal. <laughs> I think I guess to elaborate a little bit more on, uh, creativity and, um, trying to combine that with, uh, the experience of the everyday person. Um, I think that creativity is a natural byproduct. There are people that you hear say like, I'm not creative. I'm not, I'm not a creative person. Uh, I, while I believe that there are some people that are more attuned to their creativity than others, I don't think that's a true um, statement. I don't think that people are not creative. Does that make sense? People, people are creative by nature. Um, you're presented with a problem and you don't have all of the tools to execute but you still have to accomplish the goal, you're going to figure out a way to make it happen. Um, so people, whether they apply that to art or whether they apply that to um, their lives, the way that they concoct the answer is creative. And so I think everyone is naturally creative and therefore appreciative of creativity. So even though those people that are like, I'm not creative, but I really like it. Yeah, they really appreciate it, but they're going to appreciate it more when you give them a little bit more back to them and say, you know what? You're actually really a creative person. Uh, they're going to feel more invested in the um, output of their own creativity, but also the ingestion of other people's creativity. Therefore kind of exponentiating the creative output of everyone. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I, I agree with everything you just said, but it made, it made me think about taste mm, mm -hmm. because certainly everyone also has taste, right. but arguably you can have bad taste and good taste. I don't think there's like good taste, good creativity or bad creativity, yeah. right? It's just, it's more of like a phenomenon. It's like yeah. neurons firing, yeah, where you're like, I agree that that's really good, or I agree that's not really good. One of my favorite uh, Duchamp quotes is, everything can be art, or anything can be art, but not everything is. Um, and I agree with that 100%. Like, anything can be art, but not everything is. And I don't know where the line is for it. Taste is a matter of education and experience. Something can be, something, something can be executed in great taste and not be art at all. Right. Right. Like, um, do you know, do you know Muji? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's For a sure. Japanese no brand brand. Yeah. That generally everything is well, well made. Uh, sorry, let me, let me say that. That's, that's not exactly true. It's made better than Ikea. Right. But I mean, <laughs> it, it all generally looks good. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's nothing offensive about it. Right. But you could never call it. I, I couldn't in good conscience call it art because nothing about it is challenging. It's, it's very much establishment. It's uh, 
It's not challenging. Is it easily replicated? I mean, it's as much art as the Ford Focus is mm. art or mm. something. Or, you know, take, mm. pick any, like, the Honda Accord. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, like, not offensive, very popular. Everyone yeah. has it. The Honda Civic, even better. Yeah. The Honda <laughs> Civic. Right? Like, it's as much art as that. I mean, it's not really... I, I going to say, I did see, like, a, a Civic the other day that was weird looking, but... Yeah. That's touch, though. That's, that's touch on users, so that's integration, right? That's, uh, I wouldn't... It's not cultural integration. It's social integration. It's some sort of, like, there's some kind of integration going on there where you get the Honda Civic off the factory line and then it goes to a lot and there are people that interact with it there and then it sells off a lot to a particular type of person and that person treats that object in a particular way. If someone way. modifies their car, they've used it as a canvas and they've created art. Yep. Yeah. But like the mass-produced item, I think at some point it stops, at some point in that corporate process of producing a commercial good it's a void of personality yeah at some point you're not making a, a statement anymore right i mean it's like i weigh sunflower seeds did you ever see that no uh he created it was like it was like over a million or 10 million sunflower seeds that were all hand painted every one of them was like and then he put them in a pile and they were on exhibit i forget at moma or something um and are, is one of those art? All of those collectively could be considered art. They're from someone who claims artist as their title. He didn't touch a single one of them. He had his um, staff create the items and then place them there. They're all one of a kind. He's like the creative director or the project manager yeah. of, of the installation. Yeah, <laughs> and it's weird because... It is validated as art by the institution. The institution said, yeah, that's art. We're going to go ahead and pay you to make that happen. And then we're going to run it. We're going to put a bunch of marketing dollars behind it so that people come view it. But is that sunflower, hand-painted sunflower seed any different than the Honda Civic coming off the factory line that was also touched by There's a individual different context. hands? Yeah. So, the intent is different. Yeah. Obviously. This is like a very interesting gray area of, I mean, I guess when you start saying what is art, when you're trying to define art, <laughs> right, it, <laughs> you very fast can end up in slippery slope and gray area. And uh, maybe as soon as you called something art, it stops being art at that point. <laughs> yeah. Like it was art until you identified it as art. And now, yeah. now that you've. Oh, yeah. You've, you that's know, like I mean, uh, the definition when people try to define God. This is something I've heard. This maybe gets a little too heady. Um, when you try to put a parenthesis on God is the minute that God stops existing. Parentheses. Parentheses, like, like encapsulation. Try to, yeah, yeah. You try to define it. You try to say this is what it is. Then it, then it like evaporates out of that as being that. Yes. This and, is kind of the, the main tenet of Taoism. Yeah. yeah it's like as soon as... As soon as you name it, it's not the thing that you were trying to name. Yeah. It's you just named the thing it was, but not what it has now become. Right. You know, it's like always in flux. Yep. And so you could never capture that flux. Yeah. So know? don't try. Yeah. <laughs> Stop trying so much. 
you've, uh, I think, quite eloquently expressed this dynamic between an artist and an audience in that you want to make something that impacts people, that is sensory, that, you know, that's kind of creating some kind of dynamic where the experience of the thing you've made, mm -hmm. whether that's a, a painting or an experience design, causes an emotional reaction to the audience. Uh, so other than the desire to do that, like what inspires you to, to make art or like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Uh, it's, it's people. I mean, I love people. I love human beings. I love the human experience. Um, I love being able to smell roses and taste coffee and, um, see the ocean and see mountains and, um, feel like kitten you know like those are all things that are awesome experiences um as a creator i want to try to exponentiate an experience similar to that for people that's multi-sensory um or that is inside their inside their mind so in our conversation earlier about the dimensions the sixth dimension is all possible worlds from a single beginning so like anything that you could possibly experience uh, in your life from your original origin, so your mom and dad, any, any life experience you could possibly have from the origin of your mom and dad. Seventh dimension is all possible experiences from all possible origins. Um, we're not there yet. I'm not ready to... Start talking this isn't like people. mathematical dimensions, uh, right? It's uh, yeah, it is, but it isn't. I, yeah. I'm not that smart to to communicate on behalf of mathematics. I mean, do you know a hypercube? Like a hypercube? It's like a fourth dimensional cube, not not including time as a dimension. So mm -hmm. it's like just spatial dimensions. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I didn't mean mathematical, although. It's oftentimes represented with, I mean, it's pretty much only yeah, it represented. Yeah. yeah, it is. Like the 11 dimensions of reality are mathematically supported. I don't have the acumen to defend uh, that, uh, that math. Uh -huh. But I can explain the concepts at a very high level, at least up to the seventh dimension. Because I, uh, I saw some, some geom geometric kind of explanation of higher dimensions. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's like the ant like on a, on a piece of paper, if you fold the piece of paper over, um, the distance that the ant has to travel uh, shrinks. Is that yeah. the same? Well, that's like a, like a wormhole or something. Yeah, yeah, similar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it involves like, a, it does involve being able to fold things and have like their edges yeah. touch and stuff, like how you define these geometric dimensions. Like, okay, if I added one more line, but tried to, but still shoved it in the same space, and that's mm -hmm. how you. But but what you're talking about seems like something a little bit different. Like when you're talking about, okay, all possible experiences from all possible origins, right? This is this seems more like a Buddhaic or Buddhist. It's something in here. Like I want people to experience something in their mind. Um, I uh, so personal 
little personal history. I ended my relationship with my business partner uh, at Civitas now in 2015. I'd started another business with a uh, another person that was focused in urban agriculture, something completely outside my realm of experience or knowledge, but it was something I was passionate about at the time. Uh, I'd seen a design competition posed to designers that was um, how to solve food insecurity in uh, urban settings in the 21st century. The winning design was a 55-story skyscraper, as big as the Levesque Tower here. The whole thing was a farm. And I was like, man, I want to do that. I want to make some farms out of skyscraper farms. It'd be sweet. Built 20 of them around Columbus, Ohio, and everybody's fed on subscription services. Like, it's delivered to their house. Fresh foods. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, and uh, I did a survey of the current uh, state of urban agriculture, and it was disjointed. No distribution networks. Mostly urban settings run by the locals. And uh, so I met with a... Uh, engineer from Ohio State, we developed a, um, a, not a program, but a design that was growing food inside shipping containers. You could do eight times as much food in the same amount of square footage. Um, and we we're going to put them in neighborhoods uh, that suffered from high unemployment, lack of transportation, and uh, uh, inaccessibility to jobs. Uh, it was way more expensive than just putting them inside old abandoned Walmarts, which would have been a much more uh, and a much easier process. Um, so I abandoned my role with a company that I started to start something else that I gave myself a six-month runway on, came to the end of six months and was like, this is not going to happen within the next three years. So I need to jump ship and do something else. I started this art project. I just kind of like went inside disconnected from everyone that I knew. And uh, I turned to collage, like it's just been an art form that I fall on. And uh, I started cutting out pictures and I would cut out a figure, a, a person, put them on the, the sheet. I was using eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. The goal I gave myself was I'm going to make 50 of these and then I'm going to move on and do something completely different, but I need to have total control over this. And my goal is to present something to someone visually that when they consume it, it sets off a storyline in their mind. It's like you look at the images and it's a picture of a person and there are other objects cut out around them. Uh, it might be a toaster. It might be a car. It might be um, a house. There's a, a subset of objects that surround the person that when you look at it, you can go, I know that type of person. In fact, I might know a person that's similar to that who has these objects because identity, I think maybe at the time I was maybe going through an identity crisis. And so I was trying to determine what made identity and it is what you surround yourself with. It's the people you surround yourself with. It's the objects you surround yourself with. Like a lot of people uh, define their identity by um, the types of objects that they have. Like, I've got an Under Armour shirt on. That means that I'm athletic or I support athletics. I've, I've got an iPhone, and that means I like Apple. I've got an iWatch or an uh, Apple Watch, and so I'm an Apple fanboy. Uh, and there's a subset of uh, ideals related to 
someone who identifies with those objects. So I wanted to portray that in these, uh, in these pieces. And so I would cut out a person and then all of the objects. And then you as the viewer looking at it, you see the person and the objects, and then you come up with a story on your own. So the piece is finished in your imagination as the viewer. It's not just finished like uh, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's neat. Like a Jackson Pollock, you might contemplate a Jackson Pollock when you're in its presence. They're huge. They're amazing. They're beautiful pieces of work. It's not going to send you spiraling into another dimension, so to speak, um, of your own imagination. Uh, you're going to think about Jackson Pollock. You're going to think about what was going through his mind, or you're going to think about the colors and how beautiful they are. But it's not going to make you create something in your head. These images that I made, these particular collages that I made, were intended to send the viewer on a trip about what they were viewing. And once they've consumed the entire collection, perhaps they would internalize and figure something out about their own identity. Is that... Uh... Did you exhibit that? No, I don't exhibit. <laughs> I, I've got like, uh, I probably have 25 series of works. That's 12 pieces or more in a series um, that I've made since graduation. I've treated my art making process kind of like I did in college where I had two or three projects do a quarter um, and then I would move on. And since I've graduated college, what was that, 16 years ago? Um, I've created something every quarter. Sometimes those will extend into each other and I'll do it like for a full year. Um, but I try to create at least one series of multiple pieces every quarter. I'm kind of curious that if this piece was designed that a viewer is going to have some... It's going to trigger some motivation within them. But if it doesn't get, if, it, if you don't exhibit it, who's going to, who's it going to trigger? Right. Maybe it was meant for me all along, <laughs> selfishly, but no, I would love to exhibit it. Um, I have not found that uh, back to our conversation about Columbus, Ohio, Columbus, Ohio has a lot of, um, I wouldn't even call them competitors in the art market. I spend a lot of time, observing the major players, Gagosian Gallery, um, Hauser and Worth, these major institutions in uh, the art market world. And if you don't have, uh, within your first 10 shows, if you don't have an exhibit at a blue chip gallery, your likelihood for a career uh, is nil. Um, my intent all along from college to now has been to be within that same, um, echelon of Jackson Pollock's and Picasso's and, um, Duchamp's, uh, and trying to make that happen in Columbus, Ohio is not an option really. And I fear selfishly that if I were to put that on exhibit in Columbus, Ohio, it would um, mute my possibility for making it a contribution to the canon of art history, which has obviously been 
not obviously, but that's, um, that's what I would like to do with my artwork is make a significant contribution to the canon of art history. Is there any effective way to exhibit online? Uh, I can buy some Instagram followers and then contact big galleries and say, hey, I've got a huge following, and if we work together... Oh, I don't mean like that. I meant like um, just for, like, so people can experience the work. I put it out. Uh, on my personal hands, on my personal handle, I've got a uh, probably five or six different handles <laughs> on Instagram, um, and they each serve a different purpose. Uh, ones that are directly connected to me don't serve the same. Uh, they don't do as well because I'll talk about my personal life, or I'll share something of my family, or I'll share share a photograph that I find enjoyable from my wanderings around Columbus, Ohio. If I focus it outward, only about the artwork, not related to me as a creator, it gets a greater uh, response. So it's the separation of the maker and the maid um, that I find to be valuable. That kind of goes to the uh, art, the marketing aspect of leaving the pieces out here they're now available for you to trade on your own without me being associated to the value creation. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, long-term, making anything else I create more valuable. Um, that's what I would love to see happen, but I don't know if that's going to... I don't know. So if anybody would like to see some of your works, like what are the best Instagrams to follow or... You know, oh, uh, just my website, Mr. Barnes, all spelled out, dot com. M-I-S-T-E-R-B-A-R-N-E-S dot com. Yeah. Yeah, I've got... Uh, so that's a place you can check out. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Barnes dot com. Yeah. Uh, I've got uh, photography portfolios, drawing portfolios, collage portfolios, um, art portfolios, and then I'd, it might be connected to some other hand, like other sites out there, like SoundCloud or uh -huh. things like that. Are you doing anything with audio? I, uh, I've not, I'm not a musician. Like I can't play guitar or drums, but I write a lot of poetry. Um, I performed a lot of poetry. I've, done uh poetry slams um i write a lot of songs that are like lullaby sad songs uh but i don't there's no music accompaniment to it it's just it's just like it's just me droning on <laughs> sadly <laughs> but yeah i've done audio i've been working with audio or with uh spoken word or written art um since college as well I'm going to go on uh, some rabbit hole and check right. out some of this stuff. <laughs> well, Matt, thank you for taking time out of your day to visit with me this evening. Hey, thanks for letting me talk about myself. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for joining us again, mrbarnes.com. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. That's awesome.